Good evening, good evening. Hope everybody's having a good night. Hope everybody had a good day. Um, I wanted to come on here and I went through a bunch of stuff and I'm probably going to break this up into three parts. Um, I'm going to do this in three sections, but I went through the Bible. I found some, some stuff in there about God's intervention, uh, Bible scripture, uh, different places about God's intervention. I, I wanted to come on. I felt like the Lord impressed this on me to come on and share this with you and listen to what God's word is saying about his intervention. Listen, take everything, pray about it, go back to scripture and read the scriptures that I, that I go over with you and listen to what God's saying. Uh, like I said, I'm probably going to break this down into three parts. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff. But I want to go ahead and get started on this video and this message for you that God has impressed on me to give to you. And it's what the Bible says about God's intervention. So I'm going to go ahead and start and go through it. Genesis 1, 4 through 5. God describes his adjustment of the earth's rotation speed so that the length of the day and night would be correct to permit the sustenance of life. He may have also adjusted the tilt of the earth's axis to cause seasons to occur. Genesis 31, 8 through 13. Jacob is speaking to his wives, Leah and Rachel, reminding them of how their father, Laban, had deceived him and changed his wages ten times. Yet God had been with him. And whenever Laban had changed his wages, God had ensured that Jacob had been blessed in spite of his father-in-law's underhanded schemes. So when Laban had tried to undercut Jacob's wealth by assigning to him the sheep or goats with recessive coat patterns speckled or streaked rather than the dominant solid colors, God blessed the production of the sheep that Jacob needed to prosper. What is clear is that Genesis 30 through 31 are describing divine intervention, a miracle, an event that would not occur naturally apart from God's involvement. Many commentators have tried to explain how Jacob used rods of green, poplar, and of the almond and chestnut trees, peeled white stripes in them, and exposed the white which was in the rods. Genesis 30, 37, to entice the flocks to conceive and produce streaked, speckled, and spotted offspring. Genesis 30, 39. But when all the evidence is presented, every theory of how this could be possible falls, fails the test of known science. External objects like branches of trees with white stripes in them cannot influence the markings of the next generation of sheep and goats. Even if Jacob was trying only to entice his flocks to mate, the use of these rods makes no scientific sense. So what was the purpose of the rods? No one really knows. Some have suggested that Jacob's use of the rods was a superstitious practice he learned from other shepherds, something akin to Leah and Rachel's beliefs about the use of mandrakes. Certainly, there is no biblical evidence that God instructed Jacob to do this. Maybe the best supposition on the matter is that Jacob used this method to help bring his to help God bring his promise 
to pass. What is clear from Genesis 30, 41 through 42 is that Jacob was controlling the breeding of the flocks, at least in terms of breeding the strong for himself and the more feeble for Laban. It would not take long for the two flocks to be significantly different in terms of both numbers and quality, as the stronger would produce more and healthier offspring, while the weaker animal offsprings would be fewer and inclined to frailty. Even without God's intervention, Jacob was using selective breeding to improve his livestock. There is no doubt, however, that the credit for Jacob's breeding success story belongs to God. Jacob says this himself in Genesis 31.9. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Emphasis mine. He goes on to relate a dream he had in which God had assured him that the rams that impregnated his ewes are streaked speckled and gray spotted for i have seen all that laban is doing to you i am the god of bethel where you are anointed the pillar and where you were made a vow to me genesis 31 12 through 13 this is the bible's second millennial bc way of saying that god himself was manipulating the gene pool of jacob's flock causing the recessive coloring genes to dominate for jacob's sake God's mention to Jacob of his vow at Bethel, Genesis 28, 10-22, and of the fact that he is the God with whom he made that promise is a reminder that God was still with him and continuing to uphold his side of the agreement. In fact, he is essentially saying that he was willing to bend the laws of nature to ensure that Jacob prospered. God was building the man's faith toward his real conversion moment, wrestling with man at Peniel, Genesis 32, 22-30. Exodus 2, 23-25. A cursory reading of these verses might give a person that impression that God was just sitting on his throne, twiddling his fingers, and waiting for Israel to do something. But God has already begun to act. He had endured that Moses would live through the slaughter of the Israelite children. He had directed the little ark into the hands of the Pharaoh's daughters. He had ensured that Moses would receive the benefit of a tremendous education, the best kind of secular education one could receive at that time. He had put thoughts in Moses' mind that he could be Israel's deliverer. He had spared Moses' life when the Pharaoh tried to take it. He had prompted Moses to flee the land and lead him into the wilderness to the family of Jethro. He had given Moses the time and the opportunity to continue his preparation for leading his people out of Egypt. Who initiated all of this? Certainly not the children of Israel. God did. We find all the way back in the book of Genesis that God had already prophesied that in about 400 years he would move to bring the children of Abraham out of captivity, which he also arranged. Could God, who does not change, who sets patterns in his word so that we will understand and ensure long before we were born, that there would be a church for his people at the end time, and that someone would be prepared by him to get the doctrines they would need to understand at the end time? 
we know very well he could and did. How did Israel get out of Egypt? Not through any rebellion, revolution, intelligence, or negotiations on their part. They got out because God wanted them out. It was part of his purpose. Numbers 22, 24-25 What does God do? His first attempt to get Balaam's attention fails. Not with the donkey, but with Balaam. The man is totally oblivious to what is going on, so God narrows him in or hedges him in. The path with Balaam was taking, led between two hedges or walls. There was enough room, however, for the donkey to turn aside, which is what she did. She turned away, but in doing so, Balaam's foot became crushed against the wall, causing him pain. Perhaps God thought that a little pain would help him come to his senses. However, Balaam does not think about God at all. He thinks, you stupid donkey, why did you do that to me? He does not say anything at this point, but beats the poor donkey. His injury does not cause him to consider at all that God may be trying to get his attention. It never comes to mind that God may be telling him something. He takes all his pain and rage out on this innocent donkey, which was only trying to obey God. Think of the donkey in the terms of this passage. But my eyes are upon you, O God, the Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not leave my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares they have laid for me and from the traps of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I escape safely. Psalms 141, 8-10 The donkey who saw God would have avoided the trap and escaped if it were not for Balaam controlling her. He made her go back into the trap and on his own ruin. Numbers 22, 26-27 God frequently does this. First he gets up in a wide place and allows us to make our own decisions. It soon becomes apparent which direction we are going, which path we are taking. Then God begins to narrow the way, especially if he sees us going in the wrong direction. He catches us in a place where we can turn around and give us an opportunity to make the right decision. If we do not do what he wants us to do, he will go a little further down the path, a little bit later in our life, to catch us in a place where the answer is obvious. And we can do nothing except stop and say, God help me. I've gone the wrong way and I need you to open the path for me. He does this to Balaam. He gives him to the point where there is only plunging onto destruction on one hand and on the other stopping and retracing his steps to where he can head in the right direction. This is the point where Balaam is in these two verses. The donkey, the donkey simply lies down as that is all she can do. Proverbs 22.3 says, A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. The donkey is a prudent man here, and blind Balaam is the simple. Is the simple. He is so without any spiritual acumen that he is just like a foolish simpleton. He cannot see wisdom. He cannot make a wise choice. However, the dumb donkey can. As a last resort, God takes matters one more step. He always 
is full of mercy, willing to give us that one more chance to make the right choice. But now, he has to do something drastic. Deuteronomy 28, 7-12. Is God involved? He is anything but passive, constantly participating across this full spectrum of the life of his people, specifically in the whole earth generally. The Bible certainly does not show nature automatically producing great benefits merely according to natural laws. If it did, then the Bible would have to show the uniform laws of nature as sovereign, not the creator God. In addition, God would be guilty of at least gross generality when he claims he does this or that. Deuteronomy 29, 5-6. These verses serve two purposes. They are a reminder and a warning. He reminds that he reminds them that he miraculously provided in their time of need due to the unusual circumstance he devised. The wider context shows this to be a warning that despite all he did for them, his aid was ineffectual because they did not take his instructions to heart and do it. Consequently, they received God's grace, his gifts or favor in vain. 2 Kings 6 14 through 17. It is likely that Elijah could not literally see of all these spirit beings that were out there on the mountain, but by faith, through the eyes of faith, because he knew God, because he was close to God, he understood that God was with him always, and a tremendous army of angelic beings protected his servant Elisha. Whether that army was always there is a moot point. They may have been there simply because the Syrian army was there. It does not matter whether there was one or many angels. It is really an indication of God through Elijah and through the vision to this young man that whenever God is, things are weighted in our favor. We have no need to fear that we have no need to fear the many who may come against us. We need to realize that there are more for us than there are against us, and a great deal of spiritual activity is taking place around us that we are not physically able to discern. Nevertheless, it is there. God is showing us here that this is true. God intends this section to give us some encouragement. From this, we ought to be able to understand that God is greater than any emergency we might find ourselves in. He tells us in Psalms 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. This man of God understood by spiritual discernment that things were going on around him. By the same token, because we have the spirit of God, we should also be sensitive to this because God's word shows that this is indeed incurring. Most people only see what is human. In fact, physically, that is all we can see. But we have to know, it has to be part of the way. The means are the wherewithal by which we act. Jesus Christ, a divine spirit, is the guiding force of his church. He tells us he will never leave us or forsake us. Just as sure there are spirit beings who rule 
and guide the church. There are spirit beings who rule and guide the world. We see both sides of it here. 1 Chronicles 14.11 This chapter records the brief accounts of two encounters in the Valley of Rephraim, probably near Bethlehem, that King David had with the Philistines. Our verse is part of the concluding comments on the first battle, verses 8-12. through 12. With the second encounter is narrated in verses 13 through 16. Both classes clashes occurred just after David became king over all Israel. Having united Judah with the northern tribes and the Philistines were probing into Israelite territory to test his strength and perhaps divide and thus weaken the nation. David's forces win both battles decisively, a severe setback for the Philistines who had been constantly victorious over Saul's armies in the recent past. The stark contrast with Saul is deliberate, showing that the new king had God's support, unlike the old king. One of the clear differences is that when David inquires of God whether he should meet the Philistines in battle, the Lord answers him, Go up. For I will deliver them into your hand. Verse 10. Recall that in the last years of his reign, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by the prophets. First Samuel 28.6 And in desperation facing the armies of the Philistine in the valley of Jezreel, Saul seeks a medium instead of leading to disastrous results. The chronicle is illustrating the good things that happen when the leader of the nation truly fears God. The chief emphasizes, however, is that God himself is the main cause of the Israelites' victories. He fights their battles for them. Exodus 14, 14. David is humbled before God, not presuming to take the armies of Israel to war unless the true ruler of Israel permits it. 1 Chronicles 14.10, nor does he presume that just because he has God's permission that it will result in victory. David asks him if he will allow him to conquer his adversaries. Both questions receive affirmative, affirmative answers, giving the king and his soldiers great confidence, cert, certainty that they will emerge triumphant. All the credit goes to God. In these picturesque way of the Hebrews, David depicts his first victory in Rephaim as a divine breakthrough of water, something like the onrush of a flash flood. He may have been thinking of the results of heavy rainfall in the hilly country when the water pours down the hillsides and the gillies, galleys sorry, cannot contain it but spill over, eroding under the torrent. In a similar way, armies can rush down upon their foes who are unable to defend against the onslaught and break. Thus, David calls this place Baal Perizim or Lord of Outbursts. We do not normally think of God in this way, but we are instructed by this passage in Scripture to consider it. Our God has multifaceted personality. He is not always calm and patient, treading softly and ruffling no feathers. Sometimes he suddenly breaks out with an ear-splitting shout and an onrush of overwhelming power that nothing and no one can stand against. Fortunately, he does this against his 
and his people's enemies, sweeping them away with the stroke of his arm. Do we wish for him to act this way in our behalf? Perhaps he will not come to our aid as dramatically as he did for the Israel in 1 Chronicles 14. But if we follow David's example of humble inquiry and faithful service, he will fight our battles for us. Our task will be to follow his lead and glorify him for his wondrous intervention. Ezra 1.1 And I'm going to stop after this. This says clearly that God was able to to stir up the spirit of Cyrus. There is no indication that Cyrus was aware that God was stirring him up. He just somehow was motivated to issue this proclamation. He may have thought the idea really came from him or from one of his advisors. But for some reason, all of a sudden, he had an inclination to give the Jews the opportunity to go back to their home, their own homeland. This verse also suggests that our spirit can be communicated with without our being aware of it happening. Understand, however, that we will not always be blind to this or insensitive to it. It is God's intention that we become very sensitive to the fact that something or someone is trying to communicate with us on a level that is not discernible by the eye or the ear. Nonetheless, our spirit can be stirred to go in a certain direction for good or for bad. We need to begin to realize that we may or may not be aware that our spirit is being communicated with. So I'm going to stop right there. That's part one. I'm going to come back uh, my next video and do a, uh, do a part two and maybe a part three of everything that I found. So share this. God bless you. Thank you for coming. Take everything that I put out. Take it to God. Pray about it. And, and, and seek his word. Go, go dig into these scriptures. Dive in. Meditate on the word of God. God bless you guys and have a good night.